ask you to turn uh, with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading um, a chunk of that chapter, verses 7 to 13, and then we'll be reading Psalm 95 uh, throughout the course of the message. Uh, this is a passage in Hebrews 3 that is taken uh, directly from Psalm 95, and verses 12, 13, and 14 are, uh, are what we're going to focus our application on as we unfold this passage uh, before, before us tonight. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, speaking in Psalm 94, there, 95, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt with Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those um, who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a sober passage that we're looking at tonight, and it comes to us with divine imprimatur to watch our hearts. Watch our hearts and get help doing so. Uh, An internationally known and well-respected apologist uh, named Ravi Zacharias uh, recently had allowed fall from such high opinion uh, shortly after the time of his death. It came into the light. Uh, Ravi Zacharias' name was well known. He was not. He spent years uh, being serviced by employees in massage parlors, of which he was a part owner. Um, he uh, spent um, his uh, fame and reputation to intimidate women into silence. Um, he was seen in an Asian city being intimate with a young woman in broad daylight, thinking that he could simply get away with it. He excused himself mentally as this was going on by saying, no one knows the stress that I'm going through. Surely, 
this is permissible. Many people asked Ravi questions about Jesus. No one asked Ravi questions about Ravi. Why is it so easy to be a Ravi is a question that might come from this. Another question is, how can you live and not be a Ravi? And that's what we're going to look at tonight from Psalm 95 and from Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 95 is structured very much like uh, our worship service. There are three major chunks that correspond to the worship that we do uh, every morning, in particular with more of a, of a, of a liturgical form to it. Uh, there is joyful praise, uh, there is, uh, which is followed by a humble confession, and then there is a humbling oneself under the Word of God, preparing heart and life to hear uh, the ministry of the Word that our lives may be shaped. The purpose of this is to understand that we may be hearers only and not doers. And so the Lord gives us these passages tonight to make sure that we are not just listening to the Word, but we are also being shaped by it. In the first five verses of Psalm 95, we are called to joyful praise. Called to praise and joyful praise. Uh, listen to these verses. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the sea, the earth, and the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Uh, this passage gives us much reason for joy. People are calling to one, calling one another into God's presence. Go come, let us sing. To the Lord, and there is nothing half-hearted about their worship. God is that good. He is the rock of our salvation. And so we praise Him with joyful and with thankful hearts. And it might strike you as somewhat odd that God can here command us to have certain emotions in worship. Um, let us make a joyful noise. We come into His presence with thanksgiving and attitude. We make a joyful noise to Him, for God is great. Um, how, you might ask, can joy be commanded? How can God command emotion? As if we, as if we can simply perform that on cue? As if we are to fake it until we make it? What is, what is going on here? Simply, we worship jubilantly that which we value most. The purpose, one of the purposes of coming into worship is to perceive again how majestic and glorious God is so that it elicits our heart in joyful response. The question is not how can God command emotion, but instead what else uh, excites your passion more? Let it be God instead. He loves you. He wants you to value highly that which is most glorious. So you do praise Him. He gives us all kinds of reasons 
for joy. Verse 3, He is God over all. He is King over other gods, local deities, imaginary deities. He's, he, he reigns over them. The, the ten plagues in Egypt settled that once and for all. The local deities were just so outclassed as God expressed His power and His saving might. He is the God of creation, verses 4 and 5. From the depths of the Mariana Trench, which is some 36,000 feet deep in the ocean, to the heights of Mount Everest, sometimes somewhere around 29,000 feet, that vast expanse, God is, is a wonderful creator of all of it. He spoke into being our solar system with eight planets. Nine when I was growing up. Pluto has been... Uh, I guess what what he is demoted uh, in, in in any case. What's that? It's still there. It's still there, but its its status has been demoted. And, and these planets revolving around our sun, which is ninety three million miles away, which those are well known facts. What is amazing, though, is that this is just a tiny part of the Milky Way galaxy, and and there are ten thousand expected to be ten thousand such galaxies that we can come in contact with. Suns so huge that their span is the same distance as as from this earth to our sun. Suns 93 million miles uh, in diameter. A planet that big. God made all the stars. The scripture says he made all the stars and he gave them their names. And he did it without breaking a sweat. The thing that strikes me about creation, one of the things that strikes me about creation is its exquisite beauty as well as the, as the complexity of the organization of bodies and heavenly bodies as, as well. And, and what you have here is a perfect combination of a God who is a masterful engineer and we normally think of those uh, the, that a certain kind of thinking that goes into that. But at the same time, a glorious artist. He, he blends both of those characteristics in an, in an incredible way. He is, he is a wondrous God who excites our, our worship and delight. And as we see God more and more clearly, we are humbled before him as well in our confession, as verses 6 and 7 say. Um, O come, let us worship and bow down. And that word worship has, has in it the notion, the motion, the motion of bowing before, humbling yourself before, uh, before God, bowing before Him. Kneel, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, Lord our God. He is our Maker. He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. The more we see of his splendor, the more we see of our littleness, the more we see of him as the perfect shepherd, the more we see ourselves as the wandering sheep. But by his spirit, he is always bringing us back. And we always are being carried in his bosom as the great shepherd, even as we have wandered. This is why we worship. This is why we confess our sins to him. This is why we find in him such great mercy. Here then is the shift in this psalm. At the end of verse 7, I'll read the rest of the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. 
though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do you see, this comes to a sharp division in the psalm. The major key of joyful, exuberant worship turns somber in the minor key of warning and caution. Don't harden your hearts. What strikes me most powerfully about this juxtaposition is that you can be worshiping God in His wonder and His glory. You can even be confessing your sins to God. And in the next moment, there is this warning, but don't turn away. Don't harden your heart. You can hear His voice and harden your heart. You can do both of those. A hardened heart, a heart, it is, it is calloused. It, it, is, it is used to friction running over it and over it until it hardens and it can no longer feel. This, is, uh, this passage is really a reminder of that low point right out of Egypt in um, Rephidim. Uh, they had seen God's work in Egypt. They had begun to see God's work in the desert. God's providing uh, the manna and so forth. And of course, Exodus had all the elements of high drama. Uh, The plagues uh, finally caused the Egyptians to pay them to leave, not to try to keep them to stay. And then there was the change of mind. There was the furious chase. There's there's defenseless non-warriors pressed in a vice and and, and being, being hemmed in by the army and by the sea and by the desert. And God, of course, then opens up the sea, splits the sea open, lets his people through, and then swamps the Egyptians. While that is still a fresh memory, the people complain because they're thirsty. And they say, God has brought us out here to kill us. We're not going to survive, Moses, and it's your fault. The Lord makes the point here, having seen my work, you still crumble and complain and quarrel. Having seen my work. They are missing the obvious question. If he split the sea and slayed the Egyptians, will he not graciously give us all we need for our journey? They missed that. And we're nothing like them, right? Hebrews says, watch out. You are more like them than you think. We can flip over to Hebrews 3. Um, I want to spend a little more time there in that book and in that section. But uh, what strikes me, first of all, is this danger. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There is a, this is a danger sign, Hebrews 3.12, a danger sign, a caution sign. It is a warning against the, a heart of presumption. It is a warning against becoming proud and unmoved by God. I, 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 want, to, I want to read five verses rather quickly with, with virtually no comment that will take us from chapter 2 to chapter 12 of Hebrews. Just listen. You, you may be, maybe you're better off just listening than trying to follow with me, but or, or follow if you wish. But beginning at second chapter, uh, verse one, 
we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We're skipping chapter 6. There are a couple in there, but chapter 10, verse 26. Um, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. A hardened heart, a presumptuous hardened heart turning in patterns of deception or patterns of disobedience. And there may be no more sacrifice of sins for you. Chapter 10, um, 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere uh, and preserve their souls. And then chapter 12, verse 15. Chapter 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and, and by it many become, become defiled. These passages of warning um, are not in conflict with the teaching of God's election, nor of his of the preservation of the saints. They are rather a warning not to presume on either. You don't presume on your election. You don't presume on your perseverance or preservation. And this is the presumption as the sin of the religious. We can be sorely tempted we can keep going to church and yet find ourselves worshiping our own flesh. We can stop humbling ourselves in repentance and begin excusing our behavior instead. We may grow thirsty in our desert because we're not getting what we want. And so we question God's goodness. If He's given us Christ, won't He graciously give us everything we need for our journey? Now, I don't know Robbie's heart, and it is not mine to judge, and this is simply an illustration. It is not a condemnation of him. I don't know the man. I don't know his heart. The pattern is instructive for us, though. It is easy for us to whine about the pressures of life, the pressures of the ministry, the pressures of living in the church, where people don't always do what you want. It's easy to whine about those things. It's easy to convince ourselves that we deserve our indulgences. The ability of the human heart to deceive itself is the essence of sin. I'm quoting the Reverend Thomas Church. The ability of the human heart to deceive itself is of the essence of sin. Ravi, simply put, uh, needed someone close enough to him to ask questions about Ravi. There is a danger. There is the warning 
against presumption, particularly for religious people who are anesthetized to the person of God as they hear his word washing over him and choosing to disobey, hearts becoming hardened. There is great warning. There is great caution here. Verse 13, however, gives us a solution uh, to safeguard our hearts. That's true. Uh, You may fall away from the living God, but do this instead. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day. I'm going to ask you four questions over the next five minutes or so that are a way of getting at what what this passage is is getting getting at here. It's a way of sort of opening it up for us. First question is this. Is it possible that you are drifting? Is it possible that you are drifting? Of course, no one wakes up in the morning and just decides, today I'm going to stop being a Christian. Today I'm going to stop believing in God. Today I'm going to commit adultery. You just don't wake up in the morning and say that. You take small steps over a period of time, thinking that you're getting away with it. And then all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, over time, your heart and perspective begins to change and harden. Watch what you watch. Watch what you read. Watch what you say. Watch what you spend, time or money. Watch what you drink. Watch what you watch. We make excuses, all kinds of excuses for our indulgences. I deserve it. (laughs) How many times have you said that? After a rough day? Maybe you do deserve an extra, an extra bowl of ice cream. I mean, you know, maybe you do. I don't know. But, but just watch that that becomes, if that doesn't become a habit, that you indulge yourself in such things over and over and over again. Is it possible that you're drifting? Is there anything that you find yourself doing now that you, you said years ago you would never do? Is there any way that you are drifting? Back in 2008, there were reports to the board at Ravi Zachariah Ministries that he grossly overstated his academic credentials. He was basically telling a lie about what he was, how he was promoting himself. Nobody called him on it. They knew and there was a lack of integrity. No one did anything about that. And so he drifted and continued to drift. Second question, Ari, is it possible that you're drifting? Be, the Holy Spirit will show you that. You, you, the Holy Spirit will show you that. If you, if you just pray and ask him to do that. Um, is there, second question, is there anyone um, you let poke around your self-deceiving heart? Is there anyone you let 
poke around your self-deceiving heart. Is there anyone that is close enough to you to give and receive penetrating questions? Um, Close enough so that hidden sins uh, don't take root. I remember uh, many years ago, Gail and I were uh, were talking to each other, and I don't, and I don't know who did what here. Okay, so don't. All right, I'm not attacking her, and please don't you attack me because I don't know which is which here. Okay, but um, we, one of us was was running down someone in the congregation. Not it wasn't even here; it was in Maryland, and. Um, and, 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 and you can do that with a counselor or, or a pastoral wisdom that's quite, quite ingenious. <laughs> you know, so we were, you know, and anyway, we're, we're, one of us was doing that, and the other one asked this question. Do you think you might be getting too much energy out of this conversation? It wasn't accusatory. It was probing. It was asking you to check motives. Asking you to look, are you, are you getting energy out of that person's sin instead of your nourishing your relationship with Jesus? Is there anyone you let poke around your self-deceiving heart? Third question, uh, are you certain that someone in your family may be the best helper for you? I want to at least have you ask that question. Many times we can say, well, of course, it's my wife or, my, or, or a particular child that is very insightful in the way he or she speaks. Is it necessarily the case that someone in your family is the best helper for you? Now, in the case of Ravi, he had many family members on the roll who were also on the payroll. And they clearly were not going to jeopardize their own income. Now, it's likely that you're not, uh, you wouldn't say that your family members are on your payroll. But there can be things that they can be afraid to bring up because it's too close to home. There can be family sins that you do together gladly. And neither one of you wants to give up. It could be that your family members are more complicit than helpful. You grumble together against God's providence. You complain together about the things that are difficult in life. You sort of prop each other up in your rebellion. Sometimes family members are the worst ones to count on for such things. Sorry to say. Fourth question. Um, Is there anyone you've let get close enough to really help. Sort of summing this up together. Is there anyone you've let get close enough to really help? I trust you've gotten past the the stage of presumption that you don't really need help. I hope you've gotten past that. You need someone to encourage you. This passage even says daily where you need it most? Do you have someone who knows you well enough and loves you deeply enough to be honest about those things? Do you trust anyone enough 
so that you do not blow up at that person if they bring up something difficult. If you have two or maybe three people uh, about whom you can say, yes, these people are able uh, to bring God's truth to me, um, and I will hear, and I will be humble. In your lifetime, if you have two or three people who are in that kind of relationship with you, I would say you are a fortunate person. In my judgment, there are many, many Christians who have no one who speaks that way to them. They simply have not allowed it. Proverbs 18.1 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. If you isolate yourself, you are seeking not God's good, but your own desire. And you are breaking out against all sound judgment. Well, what is the outcome? What are the, what are the consequences of, of living a life where you are in, in that kind of exhorting relationship with someone else who will be a truth teller to you? Verse 14 tells us. How do you know you're a Christian? Verse 14 is giving an answer that probably will surprise you. For we share in Christ. We truly do share in Christ. We truly are one in Christ if... Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We are truly Christians if we hang on and don't let go. It's something you know at the end of the race. You may be fooled at the beginning, but it's something you know at the end of the race. You hold your confidence, your original, original confidence, confidence firm to the end. Look up with me at chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 6. And we are his house. We are part of his house. We are part of Christ. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in hope or in our hope or with hope. The outcome is you will save your soul. The outcome is you will save someone else's soul if you are linked up with him or her in such a way that together you are pointing one another to Jesus. It's very important that you have someone in your life where that kind of thing happens. Uh, I, I have been passing around um, a, prayer, five, a little five-pack of prayers on four-by-six cards. I've given them to a number of different people in the congregation. And the first card says, says this, among other things. It's a prayer in the morning. This is a morning part of a morning prayer. And because it means nothing to begin well if one does not persevere, I ask that you would continue and increase your grace in me until you have led me into full communion with your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that I may see his beautiful and great glory. What, what I love about that is that every single day you can make that your prayer. It means nothing. If I began well way back then, but just give up today, it, it means it, it is of no value. It means nothing to begin well if one does not persevere 
I ask that you would continue and increase your grace in me until this time, until you have led me into full communion with your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that I may see his beautiful and great glory. Make that your prayer as you persevere with your arms locked with a brother or sister. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word and thank you tonight that you've given us people. Uh, People who love you and if we're fortunate, people who love us. We pray that we would grow more and more skillful in being able to walk alongside a brother or sister to give a timely uh, word of advice or counsel to do so, to, to know each other well enough to have at least one person who we know well enough and who knows us that we can speak words of deep encouragement and share that uh, discouragement and even those sins that we're, we're stuck in. So Holy Spirit, work in us in this way we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.